Picada, Greg Henry, the October issue of Risk Management Monthly, coming to you. This is 2014, and in case you were entirely disoriented, Greg is up in Michigan there. We're doing this on our reliable, wonderful Skype line. Greg, hi. Hi, Ricky. And uh, I know it's like uh, near 100 degrees or something like that in uh, Los Angeles. We've got the sled dogs ready to go here in Michigan. I, I've got my uh, shirt on, my, my heavy flannel shirt. I, you know, I feel like I'm on tool time or something, and uh, we're ready to go. Yeah, actually, it is, it is supposed to be 99 today, 100 to tomorrow, which is really unusual. But the good part about having this heat is it helps it evaporate all of this moisture that's on the ground. Yeah, right, all oh, of it. <laughs> you know, we haven't had a drop of anything. But I yes. was in Phoenix a week ago, and we were in one of those monsoons that they're kind of famous for, and it was unbelievable, unbelievable. There was We had a fair amount of tree damage as a result of this thing. Lots and lots of trees were knocked over. You know, they have these, what are these washes there, which yes. are you know just basically full of rocks normally kind of thing. Three, four, five feet of water. Look, it looked like the Colorado River. It, could, it looked like somebody could have gone, you know, started a river, river rafting company for, you know, a few hours. It was so unbelievable. Yeah. Well, the, this is Michigan. We're wet and we're cold. Water's not our problem. So uh, let's move on. I'm sure people don't want to hear about our environmental problems. All right. Let's get started then. Um, did you want to do a, um, a letter? I want to do the first one here from a guy who was on the show just a couple of weeks ago, and that's Aaron Matlock, who wrote and said, Greg, remember when uh, Greg Moore and I were on your on Risk Management Monthly? And yes, I do, uh, Aaron. Thanks a lot. And then he asked the real question why he wrote. I'm working on a uh, talk on black box warnings, and he's wondering if I had ever done any cases where black box drugs were involved or it was an allegation. And uh, I checked with some of my friends who do a fair amount of med legal work. I have never seen a case in which an emergency physician was accused of using a black box drug that had a bad outcome. Now, I'm not saying that that can't go on and be a lawsuit somewhere, but it sure is rare. Uh, I, I, Rick, I don't know whether you've ever heard of one, um, I went back and, and looked at s- some old files looking at causes. I have no reference to the fact that black box drugs are a big problem with emergency docs. Well, you know, uh, it's surprising the number of drugs that we use that have black box warnings. Like, you know, the, I, I think fluoroquinolones and the tendon rupture kind of thing and the, the elderly patients on those drugs. Uh, I, I think there's a, probably a bunch of them that we're kind of like not particularly aware of. And one of the issues in these cases is there seems to be alternative drugs that can be used. So in the event that there is a untoward problem, as an example, we did a long, long time ago, the first case of somebody successfully winning a lot of money from J&J because an elderly person, about 85, ruptured both Achilles tendons because he was given some fluoroquinolone and some steroids for his quote-unquote bronchitis. At and, the same time. Right? Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and um, so I'm kind of wondering, since those cases are, this is really supposedly known now, if you gave some 85-year-old fluoroquinolone for their bronchitis, and, you know, how about a shot of Kenalog as well, sir, whether in fact you could be held culpable, given the fact that there are so many alternative drugs that don't cause ruptures. And, you know, that guy in the 85s, he didn't do well. Well, I, I'm just saying that in my caseload and the people I've consulted, they haven't seen it. But certainly, you know, stay tuned. Plaintiff's attorneys are very, very good at finding little little holes in the wall. Unfortunately, you say we use the term black box drug as if that's always a bad thing. Droperidol got a black box warning over nothing as far as I'm concerned. It was a useful drug. We all used it for multiple things. We would have seen a family member get it. And then all of a sudden, I, I think they took a lot of bad data, very few cases, and produced a black box warning and took a perfectly good drug and made it sort of verboten. I don't see all the black box warnings as being given out fairly or intelligently in the country anyway. 
No, I think that that's probably true, but I think it's once it's there, I, you, you, do you want to arm wrestle with the FDA about, no. well, you know, I'm defending or not defending the black box? <laughs> Is If there's one thing you can say about the feds, they have an unlimited supply of young lawyers who have nothing better to do than chase you down. So uh, I think that's right. If, if it shows up black box, at least you've got to justify why you're using that medicine. Well, yeah, and I think I, I agree really with what you've said about Dropertal. But can you imagine if Dropertal was used and somebody basically arrested the first thing that's going to happen is that somebody's going to pull out that PDR and say, oh, by the way, look at this. Rick, most of the people you use droperidol on, you hope arrest. It'll just, it'll just <laughs> don't, get them out faster. Don't, don't, show, don't show that cynicism. <laughs> we only, we've only been doing this for 10 minutes now. Okay. All right. You're right. I'm bad. Go ahead. Uh, you want me to do a James Lorenzano, a frequent, frequent writer, we followed his career now for a bunch of years. Yes. He wrote that, catch this, this is unbelievable. This is from the fall 2014 newsletter for the from the Massachusetts, uh, I guess, a Board of Health to all of you doctors out there in Massachusetts. Massachusetts is also referred to as the Democratic People's Republic of Massachusetts. <laughs> yes. And, and they've now taken control of every aspect of your life, I think. Well, unfortunately, we missed the deadline here because this was a notice of public hearing and public comment period, which expired October 3rd, damn it. Yeah. What is today? We just missed it. Or did the we miss third. it? The third. <laughs> Let me, well, I got to leave. I'm, I got to talk to these guys in Massachusetts. Hold on there. I'll get back yeah, to you. Yeah. Okay. In any case, this is about a regulation that would require as a standard of eligibility for licensure, physicians must demonstrate proficiency in the use of computerized physician order entry, e-prescribing, electronic health records, and other forms of health information technology. Specifically, applicants for licensure must demonstrate the skills to comply with the federal meaningful use requirements. The full regulations may be viewed here on the website. That, 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 that. It's like, well, you, oh, my God. You realize, God. Rick, on, this, on that basis, I've now just lost my license. So let's, let's, let's move this on is a, here. This is a move to get rid of every doctor over the age of 55 in the state of Massachusetts. Right, exactly. Right. And Jim writes to me and comments on the fact that he knows I still use a, a quill pen. I haven't even moved on to the ballpoint yet. And the BIC. You're right. The BIC. The Have BIC. you heard of the BIC? I've heard of the BIC, but I, I wouldn't lower myself to touch one. In any event, the it, it's absolutely crazy that now you have to demonstrate this. It will happen. It will come along. But it's very interesting that they've actually made it a law to keep your license. Well, there are, uh, th this is a proposed regulation. They haven't they haven't committed the ultimate crime yet of uh, of approving this or modifying this. But those of you in Massachusetts who are testifying today against this ridiculous, you know, what I do is I see it as an opportunity. Here is another CME course I can concoct. You know, that shows that <laughs> doctors know how to do this stuff. You know, on the internet, we'll do this course. You get five CME credits for it as well. You show the certificate to the uh, Massachusetts Medical Board, and you're, you're passed. God, Rick, <laughs> yeah, you you can make a product out of anything. <laughs> exactly. I love it. Whenever love there's it. adversity. Right, exactly. There's opportunity. Exactly right. All right, get, get, to, uh, get to our last letter here. This is the, about the fellow who is complaining. Now, I don't know, honestly, whether this was intended for Risk Management Monthly because I don't, you know, there may be some tangential issues related to risk management, but he was really complaining that their health system, a large health system, which will go unnamed in this country, is basically pushing for their door-to-doctor time, <laughs> get, get, get this, to be 10 minutes 10 minutes door to doctor or door to provider, but that doesn't mean triage nurse. That could be mean NP or PA. And catch this, door to bed after, you know, they were going to give them five minutes after they, they saw them to get them to a bed. And the, the fellas told us what their times were. Their times are really quite admirable. They're, it's 100, they're, they're a big ER, 
they and their their door to provider times are about 30 minutes i think 29 minutes and they were doing really good on their door to bed times and and so they this fella is expressing I think I don't recall his name, and I really feel bad. But maybe it'd be better if we don't mention his name, anyway. We're not going to mention his name. Yeah, that, thank you. That the fact is that the, that he's got good times now, and he's complaining that they're just squeezing him and squeezing him. No more resources. No more nurses. No more anything. And it's kind of like upon the contract doctors, contract doctors. And you know, I would really like it to be upon the employee doctors. The employee doctors can say, hey, we're doing the best we can. Are you going to fire me? And the answer is no. Contract doctor, hey, we're doing the best we can. We're going to fire me? Well, as a matter of fact, we, we hear contract is coming up, and we, we want to talk to you about that. <laughs> right. This will be the new battleground for groups competing, how fast in, fast out. Um, I tend to be a, a minimalist on all these things. I would move patients in as quickly and out as fast as I can. But I think what we've forgotten is we are going to have that group of patients who too fast is not good. The patient who's got a cut finger, two minutes, in and out, I don't care. When you have altered mental status, or maybe they've just been a little drunk, or maybe grandma's a little confused, some of these cases may take a little more time. And, and I think that the key to being a great doc is to know who needs the minute and who may need to be observed in the department for an hour. I, I mean, this is crazy. Well, you know, they're not talking about how long people stay in. You can stay there indefinitely. But right. it's, it's how quickly you get in the department that they're making a, a fuss about. Well, I, I think that they're right about, number one, there's way too much little crap done at triage, which is totally unnecessary. We're asking all kinds of mandated questions, which drive me nuts. But <laughs> once, once you've gone through that, yeah, I, th- I think doctors should move the cases along. But, you know, is it going to now get down to 30 seconds? Is it now going to get down to 20 seconds? How about minus one? Yeah, minus would be interesting. Yeah, yeah. I knew before you came in what you had. That would be the only way to get those numbers. Right. You know, I think the poor triage nurses are, they just keep on adding more and more crap to their list of questions that they're expected to ask people. And honest to goodness, they were, I think that the Joint Commission wants to have something about nutritional assessment. Nutritional assessment, like, Come on, you know, I'm here for my sprained ankle uh, and learning preferences and all of this other stuff that we've talked about ad nauseum in the past. Yeah. Just add, you know, some good goody two shoes will add this one more question uh, like, you know, spousal abuse, who's beating you up? You just add it to the list of things that are, are not related to why I'm here and what I want you to do for me. Yeah, I think doctors who've been around a while can make judgments. You look at a situation and there's something wrong here. The other thing is, I don't think there's a huge amount of proof that asking some people those questions actually produces what you want, which is better health care. You know, I think it's one of those things where in concept, it wasn't so bad. It just is, there's not a lot of proof, not a lot of good papers and studies that say that this is changing the face of America. Greg, as far this as is concerned. just intuitive. You don't need proof. This is intuitive. This right. is this That's is right. apple pine motherhood, man. Yeah, we don't need is, no sticking yeah, randomized double blind trials here. Yeah, what, please. What's the matter with me? Right. All right. You want to? Can I summarize a piece that appeared in the September 2014 issue of ASAP Now? That is the official publication of the college, which a friend of ours and a fellow teacher at most of our courses. Kevin Clower is the editor. And Kevin is both a lawyer and a doctor. And Jennifer Lomdu Stankus is both an MD and a JD. And they came together to write a piece called Warning to the Experts. And uh, let, me, let me just hit some highlights here. They talk about the fact that the preponderance of the evidence and all these things that you need to get a reasonable verdict in malpractice cases, maybe we can move to a different standard 
somewhere between the, the criminal standard, which is beyond reasonable doubt, and then there's the preponderance of the evidence, which is the civil standard. There's something in the middle which is clear and convincing. That means if they're close calls, it goes to the doctor. Clear and convincing is an interesting standard. The other way to go about it, and the one that the article is really about, is we've touted for years now, we want a gross negligence standard for emergency medicine in all of the states. Gross negligence would mean that on the face of it, a reasonable person would look at this and say, no, they didn't live up to their responsibility, and this is clearly a screw-up. Okay, most of us can put up with that, but here's the damage and here's the problem, as these two authors point out. What if you've got somebody, MD, FACEP, who's willing to say in court on a case which is a difficult case, Oh, no, that's gross negligence. Well, what do you mean gross negligence? This is the kind of thing we argue about at meetings all the time. Where is the standard? Well, they referenced the Georgia case in which two emergency docs, one very well known, and they name him Dr. Peter Rosen. Remember, his name's on the book sitting in on, your, on your shelf, actually said that a gentleman missed a, a P.E., which, by the way, didn't happen for two weeks. And he should have picked it up in the emergency department with a nonspecific complaint of chest pain. He called that gross negligence. Now, the problem in Georgia is whenever you're convicted or, uh, of gross negligence, your license comes up for review. So this was, a, this was a double whammy. We got somebody who actually was willing to say that somebody committed gross negligence. And my definition of gross negligence is if they come in with a hangnail and you cut off their head, that's probably gross negligence, particularly when they weren't even complaining of a headache. If they're complaining of a headache, you can cut off their head. But you know what? This is a very interesting article because in the official paper of, of, AC, uh, of the American College of Emergency Physicians, the biggest uh, organization for emergency medicine, they actually named the doctor's names uh, on this gross negligence case. And then they put out a warning, which says, beware, essentially, at the end of the article, we're looking. Here's the guidelines for, for being an expert witness. And here's how the ethics committee can review you. And we ain't going to let this happen anymore. So bravo to doctors Clower and Stankos and to ASEP for letting him publish it. Well, you know, to be a little bit on the other side, just a tad, we really don't know how out of line this was because th these are new standards by which physicians are being convicted. They weren't there before. And I think it's really important that the experts really understand these new standards and, the def and their definitions. This might have been a stretch for sure, but I, I agree that and we've talked about this before, this issue where by a loss on a malpractice suit virtually triggers an analysis of your, of your license by the state medical board. That's a problem because that really never happened before unless you were really, 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 really bad. And in fact, you know, we've talked before about doctors who have been charged criminally with negligence and I mentioned the, you know, the anesthesiologist at our hospital that was super, supposedly supervising a number of nurse anesthetists, and there was a bad outcome, and this doctor was criminally charged for his behavior. Well, listen, this is just a warning to everyone. Things are changing in certain of the states, and keep abreast of this, because the uh, changes in the standard may be coming to a state near you shortly. Hey, listen, dude, I'm going to do Welcome to the Hot Seat. I told you about that, this thing in uh, the August issue of ASAP now. I feel like yeah. we're stealing all their material, but we're paraphrasing. So this is not a violation of Title 19 of the U.S. copyright law, by the way, and Kevin knows that. Yeah. <laughs> this is a one-pager called Welcome to the Hot Seat, written by Patty Wood and Dr. Douglas Sagan. Do uh, Dr. Sagan is a J.D., uh, MD, and Miss Wood 
is a body language consultant and professional speaker. Aren't you a professional speaker? And the author of eight <laughs> books. You've only done six. Yes, right. Exactly. She is interviewed weekly by national media, including CNN, Fox News, Today, and I'm going to give you both of their email addresses in the uh, notes section my, that my sister will write up for you in, in case you want to get their, get uh, more on this or contact them for help when you're involved in the case. But let me just summarize. She said, they say, understand how to use nonverbal communication to exude confidence and credibility when you are on the stand. You probably can uh, verify every one of these items, Greg. Yes, I well, I I agree with that. Let me tell you, I've seen Exude. it done well, and I've I've seen non-exuders who <laughs> who turned the jury off. But We're go just ahead. like melting in the chair, slinking right, back. Exactly. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, no, you I need to exude confidence. And the fact of the matter is, is that you consciously, consciously have to work on your nonverbal clues. This is not a matter of accident. That's why people hire her to prep you on your behavior and, and, and analyze your behavior. And, and your looks, what you're wearing, what you're doing, right? Well, she didn't get into that. She just got into body language. You want to be aware of the dance between you and the opposing counsel and avoid being reactive to the opposing team's attorney. So here is her advice. First of all, take up space. Well, some of us take up more space than others, you know, but... But, Rick, what she's meaning is not physical space, psychological space. Well, you want to look powerful, like a true expert, but not appear arrogant. Take up space and get big. Put your arms on the armrest of your chair. Stretch out your feet. Research says, catch this, that women on the stand tend to perch at the edge of the seat and arch their backs, which makes it look less powerful. Men tend to slouch and rely more on the backrest. I could just see you slouching back. Where are you? You know, you just you know, come up. So men are slouching, and it makes a difference in that you have to be careful that you don't look like you are disrespecting the audience, the jury, and the and the judge, and all these other people. Purposely vary your position to be in control, but when you feel stressed, get big. Number two, project openness. Did you know, Greg, that the limbic brain of the viewer senses danger and dishonesty when the palms of someone's hands are hidden? You got your hands in your pockets, Greg? (laughs) Yes, but that's that's a whole other projection. Go ahead, Rick. Keep your hands open and in view on the table or the arms of the chair. Gesture normally, but don't use sharp, cutting, or poking motions that can be read as symbolic weapons. Man, you got to practice all this stuff. Yes, Next, stay up. Uh, don't go there, Greg. Yeah, yes. I, 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 you notice I didn't comment. When you're confident and honest, your gestures move up. Your head comes up. Your shoulders come up and back. And you sit and move in a way that directs your energy upward. You come from the bowels and go north. It must be. People who are afraid and are lying have difficult moving and staying up. That's what she says. They say. Yeah. Let, next, get grounded. Like, is that a, like a third wire? You know, is that a GFI? You know, yeah, that's you know, exactly ground what it you, is. You know? That's right. This is, takes you to ground. Right. When you're in the thick of the most difficult questions and you want to achieve the highest level of, co- you want to achieve the highest level of cognition, place both feet firmly on the ground, setting them slightly apart. This placement actually makes it easier to utilize both hemispheres of your brain. Now, this is a stretch. The rationale and the creative emotional. Those are the two hemispheres. If you feel like you're going to freeze, move your feet apart and or forward to feel strong. Next, lean into it. We, now, we know that. That's, yes. Lean forward as you listen to show you are interested and confident. You can lean forward with your head, your upper torso, or your whole body to show you are connected to what the lawyer is saying and that you are not afraid. Lean in. When you are being questioned by your team to show respect and don't overdo it. We're not trying to get in their face. Next, and this is important for sure, speak with strength. Everyone, but especially women, should be sure that their voices stay strong until the end of the sentence. 
going up in pitch at the end of a sentence makes you sound unsure of yourself. That was my going up, Greg. Uh, yeah, I, I noticed didn't, that. Didn't I, do I, that very well. Yes. Going up in pitch. Oh, yeah, I just did that, yeah. You need a confident voice going down in pitch, steady and strong in volume until the end of your sentence. Next, match your movements and your words. If your emotions, face expressions, and gestures do not match what you're saying, you will seem disingenuous. We're getting to the end here, Greg. Keep your hands away from your face. Well, your mother always told you that. and that's yes, how you, she that's, did. That's how you get Ebola. Well, and more than that, I keep my hands away from your face because <laughs> you, you could eat my fingers off. So I, Be careful of here. Yeah. showing stress cues. That's what she says. When you feel stressed, the nerve endings fire at the tip of your nose. Catch this. Edge of the ears, around the mouth, and around the eyes. You may have an urge to touch or rub your face. Don't do it. Damn it. Okay. Uh, make, it makes you look like you are dishonest or uncertain. And lastly, mind your mouth. The mouth is the source of truth and lies. Avoid licking your lips or pressing your lips tightly together. Keep hydrated and keep your lips relaxed. That's basically the essence of what she had to say. Uh, he had to say, too. And I think some of these are things that we had not talked about in the past. Some of this pathophysiology of the limbic system, you know, I'm not so, but in any case, that's what they had to say. And these people get paid, I guess, to uh, help people do a good job on the stand. Well, listen, there are three other things I want to add to that. Number one, you look at the jury. You are speaking to the jury. Lawyers ask questions. But looking at the jury is absolutely essential. Secondly, if you have a point to make, make sure that there's an easel or something in the room. Get up and draw and teach. You know, I'm a teacher. That's what I do. You teach the jury. Anytime you can go, walk up, take your pens, do your drawing, you have control of that theater. And uh, it's amazing how, how the juries, you can read them like a book. You can watch them start to nod when they understand what you're talking about. And lastly, you don't have to be beaten up. And if you save your intensity, your rebuttal, if the lawyer is becoming rude and obnoxious, the jury expects you to respond to some degree. Now, I've over-responded a couple of times. Surprise, you, surprise. Yes. You're really not supposed to tell the lawyer to go suck on this. But th that, that probably doesn't go well. But by the same token, it's perfectly right to say, Counselor, you have misstated what I said completely. Let me help you with this. And you know what? The jury doesn't expect you to be beaten up by some two-bit law school grad. So it, it's okay to have feelings. You, you're not an automaton or a robot. You know, take care of yourself. But that's just, again, one of my opinions. Okie dokie. Now, I also have another piece here that we could do. You want to do something in the middle? This piece is entitled, Suddenly a Malpractice Suit is Seldom a Straightforward Decision. There's a few pros and cons here about things to consider with regards to settling, but that's just kind of like preview of coming attractions. Do you want to do something, Greg? Yep, I do. Having been doing a lot of visiting to residencies in the last uh, month or two, I want to talk about, and I, I've labeled this, the 10 myths that the residents will not abandon. Now, I know that the, the listeners we have include very few residents, but what we do have, those of you out there in Radio Land, you are, many of you, teach at residencies. These are the points that I personally want you to bring up, listen to, and correct in them at some point during their life in, in the residency. Hey, but slow down here. You know, obviously, any resident who had any sense whatsoever about developing a career in emergency medicine should know all of this. He should be or she should be an avid listener. So right. to assume that they're not is probably true, but 
but you know you can lead a horse to water. Right. Num- right. Number one. Number two. You you do know that there is a substantial discount to this program for residents for their for their measly salary that they're making of about one hundred fifty thousand dollars these years or whatever it right, is. Right. 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 Whatever it is these days, Rick. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. And how, how could I ever think that you weren't going to promote the product? But I want to go back to the faculty and just understand these are myths that have resulted in lawsuits I've had to deal with. And as I ask around as I go to these places, they really aren't sure about a lot of this stuff. Myth number one, it, I just spoke to the surgery resident, and he said it was okay to send Mr. Smith home. Eh, what do you mean? If you're going to send a patient home, it's not on the back of the surgery resident who did a consult. You speak to the emergency medicine attending who, if he doesn't feel comfortable with that, he gets to talk to the surgical residence attending and make a decision. But if you think you've bought yourself any medical legal protection because you spoke to a resident about something, the answer is no, you didn't. This is a this is a big boss to big boss decision, and it's very hard to go to court and say, well, the second year surgery resident said it's all right. Well, that's the height and the queen of sciences, isn't it, Rick? Yeah, exactly. These these are doctors in training. If they were all smart, they wouldn't be in training. They'd be done training. And the other thing is, is that where was the physical exam that was done by that resident to? render that opinion with regards to what should be done. Was the history generated by that resident? No, it's coming out of the emergency physician, the history. And there's always the opportunity to say, well, you didn't tell me that. If you had you told me that, I would have not sent the person, advise you sending the person home. There's just so many outs that these people can get that this is a, a really basic trap. Yeah, the off-service, so let's just conclude number one. The off-service resident has no authority. It's nice they come down for their education. It's nice they talk to their attending. But if there's a question about what ought to happen, the resident needs to speak to the attending in emergency medicine and decisions made. Let me tell you, the plaintiff just gets more people to add to the list of defendants, and you you don't want to do it. Okay, number two. The phrase, I'm just a resident, they can't sue me. Wrong. They can sue you. Your name can appear, or it may appear as resident so-and-so. But when you go out to get a job, and all the residents eventually have to do something really humiliating to them, they have to support themselves, you know, they all believe that they're being uh, coronated and not graduated. No, you're being graduated to get a job. If your name has appeared on a summons and complaint, or you have been involved even by the term the resident, if you're honest when you apply for a job, you have to say, yes, I was involved in a lawsuit. Now, people who hire you are all smart enough to look at the facts and decide, you know, how this thing turned out. But do not, do not, do not, think that they can't add your name or your position to a lawsuit, they can. And believe me, this is how they keep the, whenever you've got a private group staffing and a residency program, this is is through the residents that they keep the hospital directly involved in the case. Uh, You are an agent of the hospital and they would love to have the hospital's money as well. Well, you know, I think that residents are generally employed by hospitals. And so the hospital is sued, not necessarily the resident can be named, but the the paper the people they're asking to pay the money is is the hospital. Correct. Uh, and I think that they, they kind of hide behind that. But I think that you're right. I think that if you are asked, have you ever been sued? I think it would be disingenuous to say, no, the hospital is sued. Yeah, right, exactly. I was was just the doctor. I was just passing by kind of thing, you know. (laughs) Right, right. Uh, What the hospital did is unbelievable. You wouldn't believe what they did. All right. Here's point number three. They have the illusion that my insurance will cover me wherever I am and whatever I'm doing. Wrong. 
But like, having written insurance policies, let me tell you this. If you're a resident somewhere and you want to go moonlight, and the reason I know about this is a recent case. The resident didn't research carefully on his moonlighting job, his gig, the insurance that he was given. He didn't even understand that it was a it was a term policy. Is it like life insurance? Yeah, well, sort of. It expired. And now he's gone two years out of the residency and he's in a lawsuit and there's no insurance for him. Now, the guy who had that contract to supply locum tenens physicians, he's gone. They aren't going to get blood out of that stone. I promise you that. The resident who was a resident at that time is still involved in the case. So think about it a little bit. Ask some questions. Understand that your insurance with the hospital where you're a resident does not cover you except for your activities in that hospital at that moment in time and on those patients who have come to the hospital. So if you want to be seeing patients in the hallway, if you want your friend to come over and you'll look at them for free in the back room, that's great. Just understand the hospital and the insurance company don't want to hear about that sort of thing. I got one of those cases, too. And he thought, well, this isn't bad. And more than that, it's a friend of a friend. They'd never sue me. Wrong again. (laughs) They'd sue you just fine. And there is no insurance coverage in that case. Yeah, these are tough cases because we all want to help out our friends. We all know that if you register in the emergency department, as you're supposed to do to make this all very formal and covered by your insurance, et cetera, that you will get a $1,000 bill for a nothing visit, as you and I know. A thousand? That's a cheap visit. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, minor, minor stuff that you were going to see in the, the resident call room kind of thing. So it's one of those things where that being true and the inability of residents to in any way void any charges makes it a real, real, real dilemma, to be honest. You don't want to put any of your friends through this kind of thing, especially if you have some friends who are not insured. They're, you know, they're not, uh, they, they're a friend of the friend kind of thing. And it's like, I think it's tough. And it's really easy for us to say, well, make sure that they, re- they have to register as a patient. That is sentencing them to economic disaster if they're not insured. And plus, they're all going to have a substantial deductible. So, when you go into the ER, no matter what the heck is wrong with you. So I'm not, I don't really know. I know the right answer. I don't like the right answer. Yeah, I I think that's true of all of us, Rick. Everybody wants to do the right thing. But but as we've spoken about many times on this show, sometimes doing the right thing is is not the right thing when you're at the bottom of the well. It's just not right. The fourth one. And this happens to both residents and it happens to to big time docs. But I've heard this several times. We were reviewing a case where they said, but we didn't have a DNR order or worse yet, it was out of date. I want to tell you right now, residents, you're under no obligation to beat near dead people to death and give out something called futile health care. And to be running codes for an hour on dead people because the piece of paper is four months out of date, I think is insanity. It's societal insanity. And we have to ask another set of questions here. That's why get the attending involved early so that you can politely end this misery. We do some of the damnedest things to human beings. If we did this crap to our dogs, they'd arrest us. But since we're doing it to people, it's okay. Well, you know, I think that when when there is a really, really sick person or there's any kind of resuscitative kinds of process in somebody who has a terminal illness, that I would expect that the faculty would be very, very much involved in those cases. There should be no authority for a resident to run a code indefinitely with the, uh, well, you know, he's down in the dining room. I'll be back soon kind of thing with the faculty. It's like, that's not, that's not right. I, I know you're giving the right advice, but I think residents may not feel comfortable pulling the plug and get a little formal about 
I don't really know how to interpret this thing. I don't know if it's in date. I don't know if it's valid or not. Uh, I think that, right, you're, you're not obligated to, to provide feudal care, but I think that residents may not have the threshold for what is feudal care that a faculty member might. Item five, and one which I unfortunately know about right now, a case, it's not okay to badmouth other healthcare professionals, other hospitals, and so happens the one I'm dealing with right now is an urgent care center. Get a life, get used to it. There are, there are going to be urgent care centers for a lot of reasons, financial reasons, convenience reasons, because you've made it hard for them to sit around ERs for several hours. People are going to go to urgent cares. And we've got a case right now, wherever they, what they said at the, at the ER, cast dispersions on the urgent care. So now in the lawsuit, which has both the urgent care and the emergency department, they just said, you know, to the, to the plane, where did you hear that the care given the day before at the emergency department was wrong? But in any event, the, they said, well, this resident said, that urgent care should have admitted us two days ago with the appendicitis. You know what? That's just wrong. That's just plain wrong. There was a lawsuit going on because somebody had to badmouth somebody else. And I think the rule for every resident and practicing physician is, may thy words be kind today because I may have to eat them tomorrow. Just be nice. You don't know what went on there. Who among us is worthy to cast the first stone. Exactly <laughs> right. And, you know, Jesus asked that question and then had to say, Mother, put that rock down. <laughs> now, be careful now. Listen, uh, yeah, I think it it's a general rule, and we said it many, many times, and maybe residents, because they're new in this and are getting a little cocky with time, feel confident in saying, oh, my God, they didn't do what kind of thing. That That is like... When residents get oriented in the first, you know, months of their uh, training, that need needs to be like among the things that are discussed because you don't know the facts. You just you're you're you're, you're working with inadequate evidence, and it's not a good idea to do that. I mean, it's just not. And we've said this many many times. This is not the chant, the opportunity to show how smart you are and how dumb somebody else is. Yeah, exactly. If you need to build your ego that way, you know, get a reality television show or something. But don't make comments to families because they don't know how to interpret it. They really don't. And when something bad has happened, they'll pick up on any nuance that blames someone else. All right, six. When are residents going to learn that you either do it right or don't do it at all. This whole thing about seeing patients in the hallway and not properly undressed, I think that the attendings are better. Older doctors are better at saying to the nursing staff, to the techs, you know what? We need to get, I need to see them correctly. I was at a residency two days ago and I asked this question, who has seen a back pain patient in, in the last month still had their shoes, socks, and pants on because they were in the hallway. 90% of the hands went up. And then I pointed out to them, if they actually had to go defend a case, how, would, how did you say you checked uh, sensation around the rectum? How, how did you do a reflexes? How did you do this or that? You know, Rick, I, I, I think that 90% of the residents said, yeah, we did that. I think that's not right. Well, you know, this relates to uh, what Bob Durlett was talking about last month when we interviewed him uh, regarding his excellent paper in the Western Journal with Bob McNamara and a couple of other uh, authors where they basically were making the contention that if the hospital chooses to create an environment where appropriate medical care cannot be provided, that the culpable one is the hospital, and that they need to be dragged into these cases. These poor residents who are seeing people in the hallways, that, that they know that's not the way to do it. You know that's not the way to do it. You know how to attack their care. 
in terms of the inadequate exam that was done, which resulted in a bad outcome kind of thing. But what has the hospital done? You know, and it's one of those things, you know, it's not even fair to ask the nurses, okay, get this person in a room. They'd do it if they could. And I, I it's so easy to, to be a Monday morning quarterback on this. And I can remember just so many, many, many cases that I've seen in the hallway. There's no privacy. You're trying to feel some kid's belly, you know, with he's on a, on a gurney right out in the hallway kind of thing. It's like, it's not, it's, it's dangerous business. This is called Risk Management Monthly. This is dangerous business. If you want to make a mistake and get get nailed for an inadequate exam, just continue to examine patients in the hallway. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree that with that more. And don't have them properly undressed. You know what? The only good patient is a naked patient. Now, maybe that isn't true for a cut finger or a foreign body in the eye. But when you have to deal with something more important, take a look at the patient. I mean, that's just not right. All right, uh, moving on to point. Oh, wait, number I think seven. we're number, at number forty-two now. No, we're seven <laughs> now, Rick. Seven of the ten. Slow down. Most examination residents believe that most examination is a waste of time now that they have tests for everything. Well, <laughs> I have a I have a case where the resident said. In this dizziness patient, in this 64-year-old patient, now we've now moved into an age range where the posterior fossa is important. He said the CT scan was normal, ergo, and by the way, it was two and a half hours after the onset of the quote-unquote vertigo. Wrong test, wrong test, beep, beep, wrong test. Well, if you look at the current data, even even the the gentleman who's wrote the HINTS exam came up with it said, Hints is much more exacting than even an MRI in the first 6 to 12 hours. He says you can have an MRI, which is dead normal when they're in the department, which will be positive in 24 hours. But he says the Hints exam is virtually close to 100%. I think, exa- I think we're ignoring examination. And in this lawsuit, the, the resident said, oh, CT normal. I mean, the fact that he had nystagmus, nah, it could have been from anything. You know what? That's not right. And to believe that the test takes away the responsibility to look for things like shifting nystagmus and alternate cover testing and those things that show posterior fossa lesions is just plain wrong. Although and I think that you have to be careful that you do not indicate or suggest that the HINTS examination is in any way part of the standard of care. I think that in addition to a course on uh, the use of electronic medical records by physicians, I'm going to do another course on the HINTS exam. I mean, I think there's a huge potential out there to get lots of CME credits and go to Hawaii to talk to people about how to do the HINTS exam. Have you ever seen that thing being done? It is like, is, am I capable of doing this kind yes, of thing? Yes, I, I, Rick. I did this all the time. And by the way, at your boot camp two for PAs, we're going to teach the PAs how to do the HINTS exam in two minutes. Well, you know, I think that the idea of going to the boot camp, the advanced boot camp course uh, this uh, in December 1st or the 4th is a fabulous idea (laughs) and learn the HINTS exam along with a whole bunch of other stuff, you know, I, I... you are shameless. You are shameless, I am sir. absolutely confident that anybody who is smart enough to get Risk Managers Monthly will be sending all of their NPs and PAs to the Advanced Emergency Medicine Boot Camp in Las Vegas at the Paris Hotel, the first and fourth. And we are, by the way, we do have two separate workshops, one on EKG interpretation and the other on imaging. And one of the things in imaging is you got to get the right image if you're going to get an image. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, there's no use doing the wrong test. Number eight, they'll take care of it upstairs. Again, the problem in the lawsuit we're dealing with is the residents came up with the right idea, got the patient going, but thought they would give them the antibiotics on the floor. That's not necessarily a good idea. No. In, in meningitis. And, and I, I think the rule is this. If you want something done in the next three or four hours, do it in the department because uh, the, there's a strange place where patients go 
where there's an, another six or eight hours added on to the care. And, it's, and uh, this had to do with too little, too late. And the question to the resident was, if you were sick, doctor, would you like treatment early or late? Yeah, I think it's really important that residents not take the position, well, the docs on the floor may want a different antibiotic. Than it, that, that, that is all crap. The fact of the matter is, is that there Total are guidelines. Crap. Guidelines that are generally accessible for the treatment of serious infections, sepsis, pneumonia, you, you know, urosepsis. There are guidelines for those treatments. They ought to be in residence in their ectopic brain and just use that stuff. And don't d- defer to, oh, that's what the ID people will, will tell us what to use. Nah, 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 nah. They can always change your antibiotic later. Number nine is just a personal uh, peeve of mine. Here. Yeah, when they use the term, the concept... I have a patient in a lawsuit who's real mad that the residents never refer to his decisions. He says, the team has decided, as if there's a magic entity called the team. That's the royal royal we. That's the royal we. That's exactly. (laughs) And, and, you know, you can't take a vote on everything. Uh, If you're going to be the big person and the boss guy, not everything is done by holding up your hand and... There are, there are things that lend themselves to sort of team management discussion, metastatic cancers, and what we're going to do. Uh, maybe a lot of inputs are necessary. In somebody with a suspected subdural, you don't need a team to help you order, yeah. order the test. Well, the vote was four, four, and three against. <laughs> yes, right, exactly. We don't need that. So the so, team says we're not doing it. <laughs> yeah, grow up, grow a pair, run the deal. And, and, and don't get caught up into this. I have to discuss this with everybody because emergency medicine doesn't lend itself for that. And the last one is the choice is not between. And I can't tell you how this has maintained itself continuously in emergency medicine. The choice is not between excellent medical care and poor satisfaction scores. Residents think either you one or the other. You give them great health care, but they're pissed off at you, or you give them shit health care and they love you. It's really between getting both things done right. And I know there are problems with antibiotics and drug seekers, but understand you're not a stupid doctor because you're also nice to the patients. And you'd be amazed at how that feeling sort of hangs out there in, in the weeds like if I was too nice – I've actually heard one resident say to another, you're too nice to those people. Yeah, that's, you, a, resident, you, that's a resident who needs more sleep and a vacation. Yeah, any, any, I, I need to find too nice. I'm not sure what that is. And I thought they'd done a great job with the patient. He says, yeah, you don't have to be that nice to them. Well, you know, that's kind of mean. Yeah, uh, You know, we did, I'm sure all of our risk management Monthly subscribers are also EMA subscribers. And uh, one of the articles in the October issue is they say it's just a virus. That's the name of the article. They say it's just a virus. And um, this person in England who I it – was, it was our first Skype interview with a person outside of the country. So we interviewed her in England, and she had done 30 interviews with parents of people – when the doctors were saying it's just a virus, because we're I know that know. woman. She's she's a PhD, not an MD, isn't no, she? You know, it's interesting because the British papers do not put behind the authors' names what they are. MD, PhD. There, this this paper had about six authors, and there was no indication of what they were from a, a you know MD, PhD, uh, BSA standard. Yeah. And, but in any case, you know, it, that was a great example. Uh, she did a great paper. They say it's just a virus. And, you know, we're trying to teach doctors to say, Mom, it's a virus. But the fact of the matter is, is that alone will not cut it because the parents want more. They, the, and this is what the people were saying. Please don't say to me, it's just a virus. I need to know what other supplemental things I can do to make my child well. Uh, feel better. I need to understand. Uh, you to understand that I am concerned about the sickness of this child, and I want you to acknowledge that the child is sick. I want you to do a thorough physical exam on this child to make it clear that you have 
you know, put in the time to assess this child appropriately. There's a whole, there was a whole litany of things that parents want that we can provide other than the say, shrug your shoulders, and mom, it's just a virus. Like you're sto- too stupid to understand that, you know, that I can't do anything for you. Yeah, it's always good to remember whenever <laughs> those words are about to come out of your mouth that both Ebola and AIDS are just a virus. (laughs) You see, because we can't fix it right now doesn't mean it's not bad. I mean, there are a lot of things which are viruses which I really don't want to have. And I think that we just need to be a little bit honest about the fact that they don't want to hear that you can't take away the organism. They want to know what you can do until the organism takes care of itself. Right. Get specific about fever treatment. Get specific about, you know, maintenance of uh, hydration. Um, And so I recommend, obviously, your EMA, you're going to get this abstract, and you're also going to hear the interview with her. But that's it. Is that number 10 or is that number 52? No, that's 10, and uh, we can move on to another subject. So let me quickly do... This, this paper here, honest to goodness, I found it on the internet and I don't know where it came from. And I really understand that I should acknowledge the source, but I'm just sorry, I, I, I can't. I know who wrote it, Alicia Gallegos, Vascular Specialist Digital Network, whatever that is, and it was in, written August 26, 2014. It's entitled, Settling a Malpractice Suit is Seldom a Straightforward Decision. And they go through some of the reasons to consider settlement. A low insurance limit might be a reason to consider a settlement because you don't want to get into this issue of tapping your personal assets in a high trial verdict, one that exceeds your insurance. And, you know, we had this long discussion with the pros and cons about this with Mike Frank, and he was basically of the view it's really difficult for it's rarely, rarely, rarely happens. But then again, we know the cases where it did exceed the limits and they did go after their personal assets. Yes, they did. So that's one issue. And I think most of us are adequately insured. You know, we've talked about the 1 million, 3 million. Do we need to go to 3 million, 5 million? And one of the points, the more insurance you have, the more they want it. Right. Uh, By settling early, doctors and their attorneys generally can negotiate a discounted payment, provide for quicker compensation to an injured patient, and reduce ongoing defense costs. Not that you particularly care about defense costs. Settling also alleviates the time and burden of participating in a malpractice trial. Settling brings a resolution, including relief from the worry and stress that such litigation carries. The imposition on the defendant's time that dispositions hearings in the trial may require and the mental anxiety which the uncertainty causes. They point out that the top reasons for settling include indefensible actions, inadequate malpractice insurance, and an expert review that concludes a failure to meet the standard of care has occurred. We've talked about these things before. I think it's just an opportunity to do a little reiteration because we also know that the statistics are that doctors win. We also know the statistics are, in front of a jury, we also know the statistics are that most of these don't go to a jury and they're settled. So this talks about settling. They also point out that some of the negatives of settling, settling requires that if you're over the minimum that you have to report this to the data bank. Settlements are also reported to state licensure boards and the state departments of insurance, which may affect uh, your, you know, you might get called up and asked to defend your behavior. You might become more difficult to insure. Medical staff bylaws require that you, when you re-credential every two years, that you tell about any of these settlements. So there's there's substantial pros and cons. You know, we've talked about this ad nauseum about this is not about your honor, it's about about your money or their money. So if you got a strong case and you feel compelled, then you know, you don't necessarily want to settle. But if you have a weak case, there's you know, there's a variety of reasons to consider settling. And I think that many times settling is being discussed even when the trial is taking place. Yes, Greg? Every time the trial is taking place, and, and I've had to sit with a lot of doctors over the years to talk about the fact that we're settling. And, of course, they get offended, they get this or that. But when, we, when they sit down with a doc, not an insurance person, not a lawyer, but they sit down with a fairly conservative doc who says, look, I'd vote against you, too. 
I'd give them money. <laughs> you know what? You ought to think about it. And and you know, and once you finish that discussion in a room, I've never and I've been paid by insurance companies to sit down with docs and talk with them about settlement. When they see the the big picture, I think most of them are uh, absolutely happy to do it. Here's the other side of the coin. I occasionally get somebody shivering and crying and crazy on a case we're going to win, but the mental strain of going to trial is so hard on them. I mean, I've seen them literally become near psychotic going to trial. They are just, they're so afraid of what happens there that you also have to have somebody prepared to bolster them up sit with them, tell them it's okay, and and pretty much you're right. Most of the time we win, uh, and they need to hear that. They need to hear we will help them out if it's a meritorious case and that we can do okay. I can just see you talking to somebody where, where the idea is for them to settle, and I can just see your approach to this, I'm, you know, knowing the heart that you have, like, uh, what, what were you thinking about? <laughs> you're not you're not serious you actually yeah, right. did what you know yes and then uh, laughing hysterically right but then right, you right. leave the room and you collect the money from the insurance company thank you very much i, I convinced them thank you rick rick i'm actually a better person than most people say i am you know hey listen you got to do one of the month pretty quickly there chief uh, the well, clock is all... clicking down here uh you realize we haven't done one case yet today that just really drives me crazy. Let me get my wine of the month. All right. Okay. Well, you know, we do have the EMA courses coming up. There is the website, ccme.org. You go over to the left-hand side, click on the 2015 EMA course. Let yeah. me know when you're ready, Greg. Yeah, I'm set. All right. But, you know, you know guys, it, it's, uh, it warms my heart to see the, the American wine industry just kicking the butts of everybody else. There's a wine I've, I've had, which is fantastic. Out of California, Central Coast region. The maker is Barrel 27, just like it sounds, Barrel 27. They, they, they give great wine at 18 bucks a bottle. Now, they have a Grenache, a 2012 Grenache, and the name of it is Grenache Rock and a Hard Place. Grenache? 18 bucks. Yeah, rock and a hard Italian place. pastry. Yeah, sort of. In any event, this wine at eighteen bucks a bottle is absolutely delicious. And even even the snobs in the wine magazines, you know, the guys who talk about hints of raspberry and all that kind of crap. Yes. Uh, actually, the guy who wrote this article is humorous. He's funny. He's great. I looked up the review, and he says, "Quote: California needs more of these kinds of wines." Great price, great taste. You know, I like that because any fool can go out and buy a $200 bottle of wine. The truth is most of us, this $18 bottle is going to be great. It's, finding, this, it's like finding a, a, a great stock, you know, that doesn't cost much. It's going to go up kind of thing, you know? Yeah, exactly. The other one is a, is a new, newer winery, again, Central California, the uh, Pasos Robles District. And the winemaker is called Booker Vineyards. Booker, B-O-O-K-E-R. He makes a wine called Vertigo. 2012 oh, Vertigo, <laughs> which I'm sure after a bottle of it, you have Vertigo. You flunked the hints test. You flunked the hints <laughs> test. But 2012 Vertigo and Vertigo 24, this stuff is, is a little more money. But I, I will tell you, when I was able to taste this wine, I don't think I could tell the difference between this and the $200 a bottle stuff. This is great wine, and there's, this is an up-and-coming vineyard. Watch out. You can get it anywhere, and as all of our listeners know, you just Google these things, and uh, they'll give you the dis local distributor, not a problem. But there's two great wines from Central California. Okay, that's Risk Management Monthly, October 2014. Thanks, Greg. I'll talk with you soon. You are going to be participating in, in our advanced boot camp course in December. I guess that's the next time I'll see you. So we'll probably be doing another Skyper next month. Any, any uh, last words of wisdom here in the yeah. last uh, 20 nanoseconds? 
Since you've been uh, shamelessly promoting on November 24th in Lansing, Michigan, I'm giving a full day course on being an expert witness. Lansing, so, Michigan. How did, does anybody know about this now? Well, no, nobody. A few people know about it in the Michigan chapter. But let me let me tell you, we've got a great plaintiff's attorney, a great defense attorney. And I'm going to tell all the secrets I've learned over the last, well, since 1976 doing this. And if anybody would uh, like to come and listen and uh, learn about how to be a better expert witness, I'm happy to have you come. Uh, lastly, I think I, I should acknowledge, and this is sad, um, the um, death of Gail Anderson. Gail died about three uh, weeks ago, was the first chairman at USC, which was the first Department of Emergency Medicine in the country, cranked out more emergency medicine residents in the world, and, and was a, was, his ABEM number is 001. Uh, he's done so much for the specialty, and they had a memorial for him at, at County that I went to, and just wanted to acknowledge him. I, I wrote a little something about his passing in EP Monthly, which is going to be, in, I guess, in the next month or so. But in any case, Greg, you knew Dr. Anderson, and he was a giant in our, in our, in our field. Absolutely. He was a brave man because you've got to remember when he came into this, he was originally trained in OB-GYN, and they asked him to take over the emergency department. This was in an era when nobody knew what the hell to do, and he had the, the guts to, to give up something, a sure thing, and take on something totally new and different, and uh, I admire him. For those of you who don't remember, this was six or seven years before there was even a board you could oh, take. Oh, yeah. This was 1971 is when he became the chair of emergency medicine. Yeah, and the first board was 1981. All right. Well, let's wrap it. That's it. Talk to you the next month. Bye for now. Bye-bye. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,